I think you see a lot of fans getting back into pro wrestling later in life because it becomes real to them again. Like, you know, it, you know, it's scripted or whatever, but in your thirties, you're like, Oh my God, he fell on his back like that. <laughs> like one time I woke up from sleeping and I had a limp. I couldn't imagine taking a fucking Spanish fly. I would, I would never walk again for the rest of my life. How about a Spanish fly in a ladder match in an empty arena at WrestleMania? Like watching yeah. the ladder match from WrestleMania 36 this year, that made my spine tingle just a little bit. Ugh, like, and I'm physically <laughs> trying to hurt myself every time I work out these days. Like I'm constantly trying to put myself in pain and seeing them do that. Like, ugh, I, I don't know. I don't know how they, they muster the courage. Of course, Michael Bikiki of High Spots is like, well, because of all the goddamn money they're being paid, which is the most Vince McMahon thing he's ever said before. All right. Hello, this is Tim Bell Pod. I'm Nick, and I have been practicing social distancing my entire life. I am joined by the Miley Cyrus of not catching the virus, Micah J. Loving. Wow. Of all the things, you bring up <laughs> fucking Hannah Montana. Um, thanks. No, I don't mean that. Um, all right. Uh, prediction time. We're going to keep it in the pandemic mood. Uh, by the time you hear this episode, a major Fox News anchor will have contracted the coronavirus. So that's what I'm shooting for here. Could be Tucker Carlson. Could be Sean Hannity. Could be that uh, crazy lawyer bitch. I don't know. But one of them's getting it because they all think they can't. Very sexist <laughs> of you. Like, to pick the, to pick, not not saying her name. Ooh. Uh, Nancy. That's saying Nancy Grace's name? Really? Oh, that's not Nancy Grace. That's That's, that's headline news. Come on, Jake. Okay. All right. And, and Coulter? No, it's the one that's they got drunk on the news. She's a lawyer. Uh, I, I, hey, I, if we keep naming Fox News anchors, we're gonna summon a demon. So let's, <laughs> let's let's stop. I think we know who I'm talking about. All right. And over in the Manning Cave is the Camper King fighting that tent, Carol Baskins, Mister Scout Exotic, Jake Manning. My God, why are you so good at these intros? And I have, like, <laughs> never thought of... And, like, my mind doesn't work this way. Mostly because probably most of my time is spent going, oh, what spots am I going to do with this kid? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh you're you're the local comedy guy? Okay. Oh, you only... Oh, well, let's just say my last match before this quarantine and all these cancellations happen has me very frustrated. And I hope my last match isn't the last match that I just had because that was awful. And every time I think of an awful experience, I think of that match. We're talking about a pretty interesting person today. Uh, you may know him as PWI's 26th ranked wrestler in 1992. You may know him as respected worker Matt Bourne. Or you may know him as the legendary Doink the Clown. Or you might know him as the most imitated gimmick in the history of professional wrestling. Or according to Randy Savage, the worst clown that ever lived. The worst clown ever is John Wayne Gacy. That's, I mean, that's, we're, we're, I was going to get into that, but yeah. <laughs> well, listen, right. we're going to get into some of the stuff that Matt Bourne did, okay? So we're going to debate that point through the beginning. <laughs> <All right>. Let's, <laughs> let's not make blanket statements like that right at the top without <laughs> investigating all of the evidence, okay? And you may also know Matt Bourne as the guy who trained Tony Kazina, who was the guy who trained me. So I oh. think I think it's only fitting that I also too did a Doink the Clown uh, ripoff at one point in time in my career. So, <laughs> really? Oh boy! So I I at least have somewhat of a lineage to it. All right. Uh, 
Matthew Wade Osborne was born July 27th, 1957 in Charlotte, North Carolina. On the same day, the legendary St. James Theater in London shut down, and as one avenue for great theater closed, another was given born. <laughs> uh. Matt was born into the business. We've said born like nine times Yeah, already. the puns, fuck them, we're done. Matt was birthed into the business as he was a second-generation wrestler and the son of Tony Bourne. Tony Amateur wrestled in high school and for the U.S. Navy and went on to have a pretty damn uh, decent career in the territories, finding a good bit of success in the Pacific Northwest with Don Owen. Tony was a divorced single dad, which meant little Matt would grow up uh, around the industry, going to matches with his dad, mostly an Amarillo brother, Houston brother, and Portland brother. What a weird lifestyle it would be for a, a kid whose parent was wrestling during the territory days. Not only that, but like a single father. So you as a little kid are basically just running around the locker room and asking people to watch over your kid. Maybe certain female fans that have a certain name that I won't particularly use, but will come up later in this podcast, uh, would watch over young Matt. But yeah, just how weird that is. It just makes me think back to when Ricky Morton would bring his son, Carrie Morton, around, who is now a grown-up young man who's very talented, who's got a very good singing voice and does a lot of local plays and theaters and is dabbling in writing and, and performance and stuff like that. So it's weird to see him as a grown man because I remember him riding around with Ricky all the time and Ricky leaving carries dirty diapers on his gimmick table so ricky morton's trying to sell his eight by tens next to carrie morton's dirty diapers who isn't diapers much longer than he should have been and i think that's only because ricky didn't want to potty train him because it's like oh i don't have to stop for this kid to pee all the time so i can make the towns a lot faster matt loved the business growing up and he was even kind of smartened up to it at a very young age when uh, Jay York put little Matt through a bunch of moves, and when Matt was set back down completely unhurt, he was like, oh, this is how this works. Uh, definitely, like, wrestled around with some Rick Rouser's kids. Like, I remember Charlie Dreamer used to have a full-on match with Kerry Morton when he was a young child, like having him doing <laughs> six one nines like before the ring would set up. He would he would get up and do hurricanas and tilt the worlds and get the little rock and roll, shake his butt, and all that. that that's usually what ends up happening if... If a wrestler brings his kid around, chances are that kid's going to get in a wrestling ring and start wrestling around. At some point, the Bournes anchored down in Wisconsin because Matt attended high school in Milwaukee where he was a standout amateur wrestler. And like a lot of wrestling fans, Matt's love for the business kind of took a dive in high school as he was focused on amateur wrestling and, you know, other high school shit. But while attending Portland State University, Tony rented out an apartment to Jesse Ventura. That led to Matt and Jesse becoming pals. And Matt wasn't super sure what he wanted to do as far as like a career. But after seeing how cool of a life Jesse had, he decided to give the family business a shot. And that good primo weed that Jesse was bringing around and hanging <laughs> out and watching Saturday Night Live, apparently. As most people in pro wrestling do, upon hearing the news that his son wanted to get into the business, Tony super disapproved, but I guess he eventually caved. Uh, Jake, if you had a couple little Cub Scouts running around, would you let them wrestle? Absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. Of course, that would push them into wanting to do it, so I would remain neutral 
and see how they dabbled in it. But I'll tell you what, if I do have kids and they get into professional wrestling, obviously they're going to be far more successful than me because chances are I will be dating a woman who is obviously not Caucasian because that's just how my my flavor is, but also too genetic diversity is going to make this amazing athlete like The Rock because that's what happens with genetic diversity is they're going to be fantastic. He's going to be the better looking version of myself. And after I have put over everybody much like George South, have these high expectations that I'm going to be able to open up all these doors uh, for my son, much like George hoped to do with George Jr. And hopefully my son isn't too concerned with having sex with all the girls and getting tattoos as opposed to working on his craft of professional wrestling and actually takes advantage of all the hard work that I've put in for my eventual son in professional wrestling. But I'm going to have a poker face about it for a while. Matt never went to like a training school and uh, he never really even had a trainer, but he had been around the business his entire life. He drove ring trucks, he set up rings, he even ref some. So after pretty much just fucking around in the ring three or four times, Don Owen gave the 21-year-old Matt a tag team match with his dad to wrestle Kurt Von Steiger and Race Bannon December 6, 1978. Even though he never had a proper teacher, Matt does credit Roddy Piper for giving him a ton of advice starting out. He also credits Piper for being the start of his cocaine days. <laughs> yeah. uh, he also said that growing up in the business and being Tony's son led him to believing that everything was just a party and there were no actual consequences. And this is something that would plague Matt until the very end. Yeah, Matt brought up an interesting point, too, about how the guys that were big draws were the crazy ones out there doing drugs and if you weren't or not even doing drugs but just partying drinking and if you weren't out there you kind of got pushed to the side so it was almost kind of a requirement that you were a little unhinged to go out there and be a wild man because that added to who you were as a character and would help you be a draw if people were like who is this crazy motherfucker well also too i've i've kind of been curious about this as well i uh, Kurt Stallion said this in an interview is he said the best piece of advice that he would give to upcoming wrestlers is, hey, you better like smoking weed because <laughs> the only way that you're going to make friends is by smoking weed. Very communal experience. You go go off in a corner. Let's go get high. You know, and you're talking to other wrestlers. And sometimes that puts you in a situation of befriending a wrestler who's better than you or has a different position because you know chances are that person flew into town he doesn't have the connects that you have so if it's a situation of somebody who's established enough to be flown in someplace obviously can't fly with that you get to a town you're like ah, i gotta get my fix uh, what local kid can hook me up with it let's go hang out smoke talk give advice saw your match this that i'm gonna hang out with you and you've become friends with that kid and the next time you're back in that area or next time you see him like this guy's a good guy because he hooked me up and helped me with my you know smoking weed in this town where i didn't have it and you've befriended him as opposed to the kid you might mesh with a little bit better personality wise even though you know is cannabis kind of part of somebody's personality um so yeah it's, it's an interesting thing if you're not really a partier like i am like i feel very disconnected with guys and i felt like sometimes when i would go out and drinking i was a little more connected to people like one of the reasons i'm good friends with adam cole roderick strong eddie edwards and a lot of those guys that we would bring in is because we'd all hang out at the high spots house and get super fucked up like <laughs> that's how we all became friends like the world stops when eddie edwards walks in the room 
like the world melts away. We laugh, we joke, we have that instant connection because we had all that time bonding together, just getting super drunk. And it's been years <laughs> since I've seen Adam Cole. And I guarantee you the next time I see him, we're going to give each other the biggest goddamn hug because of all the time we spent together just getting <laughs> fucking drunk all the time. And if I was like such a square, like I am now, like I probably would have had that experiences with him. If we made you good at wrestling, I would be triple H. <laughs> so mediocre. Fuck you. <laughs> no. All right. Either way, Matt was off and running in Portland. He'd spend 1979 taking on Roddy Piper, Hector Guerrero, and Bob Orton's brother, Barry, learning moves, practicing psychology, and being the go-to guy backstage if somebody wanted to get high. By 1980, Matt went to the Carolinas and Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, where he'd team up with Buzz Sawyer to win a tournament for the tag team titles, beating Iron Sheik and Jimmy Snuka in the finals. And that's pretty big, not just only beating that stacked tag team, but those Mid-Atlantic tag belts were a big deal. Well, Mid-Atlantic was a tag team territory, and obviously the tag belts would mean a little bit of something. And the fact that you have someone like the Iron Sheik and Jimmy Snuka, I mean, two alleged murderers, like, you're going to have to, <laughs> Wait, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to kill somebody to get the, <laughs> you're going to have to kill somebody to get those belts. <laughs> You don't. We don't know the story about Sheik. I guarantee he he's done something to somebody that's an alleged murder. I promise. You. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's gotta. God knows what that man has done. Buzz and Matt would have a solid little run with the titles, uh, but eventually ran into the sheep herders, Butch and Luke, dropping the belts September twenty eighth, nineteen eighty. Matt would stay in the tag team picture with various partners over in Crockett, including uh, Johnny Weaver. But by 1981, Matt was back home in Portland. Oh, and Johnny Weaver, though, he was the Lou Gehrig of Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. It, Johnny, he he was a big deal in the Mid-Atlantic area, and we, we didn't dis- disrespect him or anything like that, so I'm glad I'm glad you held off because I would tell you yeah, to put some respect on yeah. I would tell you to put some respect on Johnny Weaver's name because he was he was a legend in this area and the Weaver lock, which is basically just a sleeper hold, and he was a big deal. And if guys came into Jim Crocker promotions in the mid eighties when Dusty was booking and they kind of had an attitude or if they wanted to see if these guys had an attitude, they'd get booked in a tag match with Johnny Weaver and they would tell the new guy coming in, you got to put over Johnny Weaver. And some guys would raise a stink like, you want me to put over this old man? And Dusty would always stand up and say, that guy <laughs> is Mickey Mantle. He is Lou Gehrig. You show that man some respect. But if guys just went along, I'm like, sure, I'll put over Johnny Weaver. I, I'm well aware of who he is and him in this area. And even though like Johnny, he just, he would like be one of the local promoters in the town. Like he'd be the guy that like you know made sure that the money from the gate was secure. The show went along very much similar to the agents that WWF had at the time. And a lot of their house shows, Johnny was kind of that in some of the smaller towns and B towns and other towns that'd be running for Crockett. But he'd always keep his gear in his car in case somebody no showed. He'd always be the first guy in there, especially in a tag match. And Johnny Weaver was just an absolute le- legend and a just just classy individual for everything that I've heard about him. Being in Crockett and winning some prestigious tag titles gave Matt a little bit of heat behind him. So in Portland, he would slowly start working his way up the card and would win Portland's tag belts with Steve Regal, not to be confused with William Regal. 
You mean Mr. Excitement, Steve Regal, who you should put some respect on? We can't get through an episode without me requiring some respect on somebody. By 82, Matt would get into his first big feud against Playboy Buddy Rose. In real life, Buddy had married Matt's sister. So, of course, pro wrestling turned this into an angle. But uh, there was some real-life drama here, too. Buddy apparently was abusive, which led to a pretty crazy 24 hours where Matt went over to his sister's house, beat the shit out of Buddy, got arrested, got out of jail, and then Matt and Buddy worked the main event the next night with no issues. Yeah, that was such a good story, that shoot. And then I heard it another way, that that happened first, and then whoever was booking was like, well, shit, there's my angle right there. We'll (laughs) We'll just do that shit. So summer of 82, Matt would go back to Crockett for a couple of months to work against people like Brad Armstrong, Paul Jones, and Tito Santana. But by fall of 82, Matt would be working in Mid-South Wrestling, joining the Hill Stable, the Rat Pack, with Ted DiBiase and Jim Duggan. Which was kind of a... It was supposed to be a nod to, like, the Rat Pack of Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr. But it was more of an inside joke in the sense of, like, hey, these guys get a lot of rats. Uh, rats. <laughs> oh, I didn't even think about that. Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. That's funny that you didn't even think about that. It's the first thing that I thought of when I heard. But uh, that was definitely the Just... connotation. And that was definitely more of an inspiration as opposed to the Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Joy Bishop connection. Yeah, just the image in my head now of just Jim Duggan fucking a woman. <laughs> it's just not, not a thing that is pleasing. Oh, I have a lot of salacious stories that I'm not going to share about Jim Duggan because I, I think it's a lot of rumor and innuendo, but Jim Duggan used to get down. Uh, I can't hate either because, let's be honest, I'm... I'm single right now. I'm quarantined up. Do you don't want to look at my DMs uh, right now? <laughs> so Matt would be part of Ted's feud with JYD and played a part in the Loser Leaves Town match, which we discussed on the Junkyard episode that led to Junkyard turning into Stagger Lee and Matt winning the Mid-South Tag Team titles with Ted. Matt would spend the majority of his time in Mid-South fighting Stagger Lee or any rival to the Rat Pack while defending his tag team titles against the likes of Buddy Landell with Tim Horner, Andre the Giant with Tony Atlas, Jesus Christ, Dusty Rhodes and JYD, before finally losing them to Mr. Wrestling 2 and Tiger Conway Jr. It's like you blast through all those, like, some of the biggest faces in the world and then, you know, lose yeah. belt to that. Matt's exit from Mid-South would be his first of many dramatic and controversial separations from a company, Matt's version is that he and Hacksaw were, I believe, tagging together when Matt noticed Jim getting jumped by three fans. So Bourne rushes out to save him, starts cracking skulls, saving Hacksaw from horrible beatdown, if not something worse. But then the guys they beat up ended up suing Bill Watts, which gave Matt his first real enemy in the business. Well, and also, too, it's a weird predicament for Hacksaw to be in because Bill Watts had the rule, if you get in a fight with a fan, you get fired. Now, does that rule also apply when there's three of them? Like, it might, because Bill Watts is that fucking warped of an individual. So, Matt is not only protecting the safety, but also the livelihood of Jim Duggan. So, I... That's what you got to do is protect your friends. And I think that's what he was doing. But as 
I've kind of learned about some of the stories I've heard of Matt Bourne. He might have took it a little too far, and this story yeah. might not be absolutely 100% correct. So, <laughs> oh, no, Jake, of course. We'll, uh, maybe we'll get to it in a couple of those issues. If I ever start running comedy shows again, if a comic loses a battle with a heckler, never booking them again. Let's <laughs> take the right. approach. But if the comedian goes into the crowd and beats the shit out of the heckler, <laughs> then they're, they're Headliner, good to go. next show. Warren then spent some time down in Georgia tagging up with Arn Anderson before returning home to Portland in 1984. Then, January of 85, Matt would do his first run in the WWF under his name, Matt Bourne. As part of this run, he worked 120 straight days where his schedule was something like this. Wake up, shake off the night before, work out, travel, wrestle, do all the drugs, repeat forever. And Tony Kazina told me about this period in Matt's life. Cause one of the things that, that Tony was fantastic at, at, at educating me in professional wrestling, like George told me a lot of stuff in ring and Tony helped a little bit in the ring. But the, the beauty of the knowledge that I got from Tony Kazina came from the Saturdays and Sundays when we lived together of just sitting on the couch and watching VHS tape after VHS tape that we stole from the highest spots library earlier that week. And we would just watch tape over and over and over again of just all kinds of stuff. And he would point stuff out, talk about stuff that Matt told him about. And you'd be like, Oh, when Matt was in WWF, it was this and that, but like the story that always stuck out to me and I apply this to this day and how I kind of live my life. And it's a story about Matt Bourne is how, you know, Matt, just running so hard and so fast. Like I, I remember asking Tony one time on a road trip about I go, who's the, the craziest driver you've you've ever been in a car with? And he goes, Oh, Matt Bourne. He was he was insane. And he said he got a lot of that from when he was doing his run with WWF. It was like always make the town. You have to make the town no matter what. Like if there's an accident and you're blocked up in traffic, he would drive on the shoulder and like <laughs> he would do all kinds of crazy like zoom in and out of traffic. We got to make it to town. We got to make it to town. We got to make it to the town. You always got to make it to that town and just that veracity. Oh, we got to get there. We got to get there. We got to get there. Between hearing that story and the attitude that George South had about getting there early, that's why I always make sure that I get to the building a minimum of two hours in advance, whether I'm setting anything up or not. If I'm setting something up, I'm probably going to get to the building three hours before doors. But two hours before doors, if I'm not there, I get very antsy. I see guys walk in and getting there an hour before doors. I'm like, what is wrong with you? What is, why would you even do such a thing? But it's just that, that ingrained in my head from that story and then from a time with George. But definitely that idea of you got to get to the town. You have to make the town no matter what. I've made the town before driving through a tornado. I've had car trouble, but luckily because I left early enough, like I pulled up to the building 15 minutes before the show started and I was the second match in the ring and just all types of just crazy behavior that I, I got done because of, you know, you got to make the town, you got to make the town, you got to make the town. And whenever I'm running a little bit late or it looks like I'm going to be at the building 90 minutes before doors open, I always think of that story about Matt Bourne. You always got to get there no matter what. I had to drive to Nashville. We were doing the Broken Record Longest Comedy Show, which was a 24-hour-a-day show every day of the week. So I left Charlotte at like 5 a.m. or something, drove all the way to Nashville, Tennessee in one straight shot, and with the time change and everything, I was able to get there for my set at like 10.30 in the morning. 
And as I opened the door to the venue, the MC was like, come into the stage, Nick Alexander. <laughs> and then there was like a beat and they were like, is Nick here? And I was like, yeah, from the back and just out of my car, driving seven hours right on the stage, had a mediocre set. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Something a lot of people don't remember about Matt Bourne is that he was actually part of WrestleMania 1, where he took on Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. I sat down and watched WrestleMania 1 one time. Of course, I have to go back and watch everything in professional wrestling, but I went back and watched it. I go, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that Matt Bourne was at WrestleMania. And it was about the time that I was with Tony, so it was kind of like, oh, a guy who's training me was trained by a guy who was on WrestleMania. That's yeah. crazy. Just crazy. Matt even got to cut a promo on the show uh, right after King Kong Bundy got a nine-second win over S.D. Jones. And then him and Ricky had a really solid match with Ricky getting the win with a top rope cross body. Yeah, and the fun part, as we talked about, was Matt driving like a madman. He said in the same night he was at Madison Square Garden, then he took a flight to Portland, then he, I think that was with Piper, and they ended up trying to get some coke. And then he forgot that he had an outstanding arrest warrant, and then he got arrested and was in jail in Portland all the same night that he worked Ricky's Steamboat at Madison Square Garden. Matt would also benefit from WWF's working relationship with New Japan, getting his first tour there, which he loved, and uh, he got to work with or against Tatsumi Fujinabe, Anoki, and Bruiser Brody. He even had a couple single matches with Akira Maeda, which is fucking bonkers. Maeda probably beat the shit out of him, and Bourne probably beat the shit out of him right back. Yeah, it was weird, that early, mid-80s relationship between New Japan and WWF at the time. They had, like, the Madison Square Garden Tag League, and I think that was held in Japan. <laughs> Which is like, just, just weird, but you had, like, people like Bad News and just these weird matchups that would happen from time to time. And, of course, then you had the WWF Junior Heavyweight title, which Tiger Mask held. So you would have Tiger Max come over, but nobody could do Tiger Mask's shit, so you had to fly in Dynamite Kid to wrestle at Madison Square Garden, or you had to have like somebody come in and wrestle Tiger Mask because nobody in the States could do what he was doing, but he'd be defending the WWF Junior Heavyweight title in New Japan all the time. So it was this weird working relationship that they had at one point in time, and, and, how, and that's kind of what New Japan was always looking for was an American counterpart that they could partner with so their talent could go over there and back and forth and an influx of that which then eventually led into them working with calgary and then of course mexico and then creating the super j cup which we detailed in our last episode back in the states matt's lifestyle was starting to catch up with them uh too many drugs too much partying led to matt missing some dates which vince mcmahon does not care for so he got let go from the wwf for the first time in May 86, Bourne joined World Class, which had just changed to World Class Wrestling Association. And that September, he reformed his tag team with Buzz Sawyer under the management of Percy Pringle and would win a one-day tournament at September 1st Labor Day Star Wars. I, I couldn't find this actual event anywhere, but apparently they chopped it up and just put it on episodes of World Class the next few weeks. Yeah, the Star Wars event was like one of their big big events and world class and of course they're like oh we need a big name how about something that was like one of the biggest movies of the time <laughs> this was called star wars and in the sense of like oh our stars and they're having wars so like, <laughs> i mean you know the the reagan administration did the same fucking thing so i mean why not 
Born and Sawyer feuded with Percy Pringle's former client, the Dingo Warrior, when he turned babyface after a falling out during a six-man tag match. Man, like, God bless him. Paul Bearer, <laughs> however you want to refer to him as, God bless him. He is the nicest individual, and being involved in an angle with the Dingo Warrior, a.k.a. the Ultimate Warrior, Buzz Sawyer, Matt Bourne, two of the crustiest individuals <laughs> of all time. Like, the egos, the attitude, the dickishness that is going on between this three-way of fucking hell, and here you have the nicest person on the planet just in the middle all of that. I don't even want to imagine what calling a match, being around those individuals would have been like. It just would have been miserable. <laughs> oh, no! Matt would also win the Texas Heavyweight Championship in late 87 and even defended it at Christmas Star Wars against the Iron <laughs> Sheik. He'd eventually drop the belt to Terry Taylor February 26, 88. He also had, a, obviously, lots of good uh, Von Erich clashes. One, I couldn't find it. I don't even know if there's footage of it, but it's called Parking Lot Pandemonium against Kerry Von Erich. They ended up in a flatbed truck battling in the middle of a thunderstorm with the camera recording lightning flashes all around them as they slugged each other to death. It's probably one of those things that sounds so good in your head that you don't ever want to see it because it probably doesn't live up to the hype. But um, just Matt Bourne and Kerry Von Erich with dramatic movie lighting, it, it sounds beautiful. By 89, World Class had merged with AWA and CWA, which led to Matt working with Jeff Jarrett and Jerry Lawler. With those connections, Matt would do a big run in USWA in 90 and 91, trading the USWA title with Kerry Von Erich. The only USWA thing I could find was the match against James Rapp. This is when Bourne looks exactly like a kind of miniature version of Dr. Death Steve Williams, like the hair, the body type, everything. The only other thing worthy of note is there's one commentator called the Tooth Fairy who sounds exactly like Ralphie Mae, like spot fucking on. <laughs> as bitter and as angry as Matt Bourne is known to be in his life, this has to be one of his more bitter times in life because if you've been in the WWF and you've been to Mid-South when it was at its peak and then now you're here wrestling for USWA as world class closes like you were seeing the territory system die off and so, someone like Matt Bourne was, was definitely meant for the territory system like you could just be a fuckhead and then move on to the next town and it's all about making the town making the money get the fuck out and live in that transient lifestyle and just everything that the territory days uh that made it awful and disgusting was what he reveled in and this is dying off slowly but surely it's becoming more corporate and television companies are involved and it becomes more slick so the dark corners of professional wrestling where you hide and thrived are slowly seeping away. And now you're working for Jared Jarrett, who's giving you $20 to wrestle in Evansville, but you have to go to <laughs> Evansville because that's where you pick up your check for the entire week. So you can't get your check for the big towns unless you come to Evansville. That's he did it that way because nobody wanted to go to Evansville, but if you handed out the checks in Evansville, it would ensure that the talent would show up there. Like that's how, miserable wow. and awful it was and it'd starve you out in memphis when memphis was hot in 82 83 and when it became uswa it was it was far worse so 
if this didn't contribute to or push over to the edge to formulating the crustier individual that you saw in a lot of shooter interviews later in life, uh, I don't know what else would have. The territories were in shambles, but luckily for Matt, he had worked with Dustin Rhodes in an outlaw promotion in Texas. They liked each other. They worked well together. They probably did that cocaine, uh, which meant when Dusty Rhodes took over as Booker for WCW, Matt Bourne had an in, and Matt would actually be the first person Dusty ever hired as head Booker, bringing him in as Lumberjack Big Josh. This is what I see for you. You, and you, have to, you have to think like a visionary. Vince McMahon has taken over the world, and they talk about his imagination for creating characters. I say nay, sir, nay! Dusty Rhodes is the visionary that professional wrestling is only want to see. If the people want a character based off of a one-word sentence of who you are as an individual, I see you, a man from Portland. Baby, what I see for you, I see it. I see it. I see dollar signs. I see action figures, baby. Hold my hand while I say this to you. I see you, a man from Portland, the great Northwest. A man with a lumberjack named Big Old Josh. Do you see the vision before you? Man with a beard, a lumberjack. The WWE ain't gonna come up with that for you, baby. They had you. They could have done this with you. But Dustin Rhodes did this with you. Now go out there and make yourself a millionaire. Courtesy of the second most recognizable athlete in the sport today. (laughs) Big Josh would debut as a fan who would run in from the crowd with an axe handle and uh, save baby faces. Josh would get his first ever WCW pay-per-view at Super Brawl 91, beating Black Bart in less than four minutes. And Big Josh comes down Tiger King style with a couple of live bears on each side of him. And just like the story of CM Punk hanging off the side of Triple H's car at WrestleMania 22, those two bears went on to become the legendary tag team, the Hardy Boys. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) interesting. Okay. And I just want to point out his finisher is uh, the old earthquake uh, butt splash, which he called Northern Exposure. You're GD right they did. And trust me, to be able to hit that accurately, like that's got to be hard on your knees. If you want to like murder somebody, (laughs) like God bless Matt Bourne. Like if he, I I haven't heard too many stories of people like, oh, when he hit that whoopee cushion, it was murder. I think he would would have taken care of people. He might have not given a fuck about anybody and just be like, hey, my butt's landing on your chest. Fucking deal with it. So I don't know, you know, if it was it, it was easy to take or hard to take. I haven't heard too many stories about it. I could text George about it real fast. I don't know what he's doing right now. So maybe he'll tell me. <laughs> Most of the ones that I saw of all the matches I saw, he seemed like he did protect it. He, he you know, you land, I assume you, you got to land feet first and then try to drop your butt as much as you can to make it look good. He didn't seem like he was killing people. But uh, as far as moves go and names, the best one that Big Josh had, he would walk up onto people and then kind of walk on them and he would call it the log roll, like he was a lumberjack uh, log roll in a human being. It's the stupidest uh, shit in the world. No, it's fucking great. That that no, yeah, it was it's I'm, fucking I'm great. It's fucking great. Okay. I, I literally have it written down. I was like, this is some man scout level shit. <laughs> yeah, thinking good. about your gimmick and pulling out every little like you know ounce of it to 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 do the log roll on someone. It's fucking brilliant. 
There is a parallel universe where me, Grizzly Redwood, the great outdoors, teamed with Big Josh at Chikara's King of the Trios. And it was fantastic. <laughs> There's a there is an alternate reality where that they that happened and it's it might be the better timeline. And then you guys would go up against like uh three trees from the Lord of the Rings or some shit. <laughs> Hey, you know how rappers and lumberjacks are all the time hanging out? 91's Halloween Havoc, Big Josh teamed up with PN News to take on the creatures. All right, fuck it. We're doing it again. Who cares? Coronavirus, I've gone insane. All right, this is PN News' entire rap. Everybody ready? <laughs> it's got awful. Word up, it's Havoc 91. We'll take care of business and have some fun. When the party's over, hear the fat lady sing. PN and Josh are the freshest when they do their thing. And then the yo baby yo shit, but I can't do it. All right, the best part of this, this is like, I I, I need people to help me. Christine Valver, who apparently won a WCW magazine PN News rap contest winner. Someone wrote that rap, as JR says, she wrote the winning rap and as Shivani followed up, it's a damn good rap too, or darn good. <laughs> so... Thinking about that, she is actually first row for this match because she won the contest. It's it, it's so awkward. I had to listen to the rap so many times to to get all the wording because it's it does not flow for fuck. But if that won, that means that there was maybe eleven other entries in the WCW magazine rap contest. Somehow, my new holy grail is to get every submission of the write-in votes for PN News' rap contest. I can only imagine how beautifully god-awful those things are, and that that's all I want in life now. We should write a movie about us stealing them from a museum like Nicolas Cage. <laughs> there you go. So uh, PN News hits his rap master splash, and him and Big Josh get the win. Uh, Big Josh would have a good start of 1992, winning the tag team titles with Ron Simmons. Uh, they'd lose them a, a month later to Greg Valentine and Terry Taylor. And then things took a turn for the worst as far as Matt's WCW career. His old enemy, Bill Watts, took over as the book. So Big Josh's days were numbered. Um, One match that you really need to go back and watch. Jake, this is another one for you. I think you'd enjoy it. Um. Big Josh versus Arn, two out of three falls, 35 minutes on WCW Saturday Jesus night. Christ. It is old school. It is them working holds. It is doing the mats, but it's Arn being a, the dickish heel he can dick, and it's so good. Oh, this is this is what we're going to bring up. Jason Hervey from The Wonder Years pops up again to work commentary with Jim Ross, who goes from pretty solid to annoying as shit to actually kind of funny. You got Heyman, uh, working manager with Arn, doing heel shit for 35 minutes on TV. But uh, this this one's definitely worth looking up. If I'm not mistaken, if you've been listening to Arn Anderson's podcast, I want to say that Arn even tagged with Matt Bourne back when Matt went through Georgia or like that southeast region. And I think they got into a fight, like a kind of a yeah, dust-up scuffle. So during that era so it's very interesting coming back to wcw and them wrestling for that amount of time with somebody you don't particularly like um just shows how much of a true professional arn anderson is 
Big Josh's last major appearance would be at 92's Wrestle War, taking on Richard uh. Morton. And after that, he was out of there. After departing WCW, Matt said he called up his old pal Jerry Jarrett, and Jerry just happened to be working for WWF at the time, and that's how Matt would get another job there. He'd uh, wrestle first uh, under Matt Bourne September 21st, 1992 at a Superstars taping, beating Bill Jordan, but he'd soon become the gimmick he'd be known as for the rest of his career, Doink the Clown. And the legendary story, how it all came together. They had the idea of uh, evil clown, or, or I can't remember if the evil clown idea had come around or not, or there was something they were thinking about. But the story always goes that Matt Bourne, at post match, had just wild and crazy hair out to the sides. And of course, he was always very much a disgruntled guy in the locker room. And Hawk walked by seeing a disheveled Matt Bourne. And just said, oh, it's Crusty the Clown here. <laughs> and just kind of like jokingly how nicknames stick that stuck is Matt being Crusty the Clown, this disgruntled clown who's forced to make people laugh but doesn't want to just fit Matt's personality in particular. And then that evolved to the idea like, well, what if we made him a clown? What if we brought this as a character? And and listening to Bruce Pritchard talk about the potential of doing the clown, like possibly making WrestleMania circus themed <laughs> and then seeing him for like the main event of WrestleMania. <laughs> It makes me feel a lot better about the Man Scout character when people say, oh, well, that gimmick is just going to get you in the middle of a car. That's going to get you nowhere. Uh, no, like an over-the-top character and then having a theme like that and just going all in like that and then having a sadistic side to it. it it's, it's, it's fascinating. It makes me feel a lot better about my, my choice in my career, even though I'm still toiling away in obscurity. <laughs> I think my favorite part of all this is uh, so Hawk points it out, Krusty the Clown. They tell Vince, and Vince goes, "I love it. Who's Krusty the Clown?" <laughs> <laughs> and then it was the whole process of like, "Oh fuck, Vince. Vince doesn't know what a ham sandwich is." I wanted to add to the Jake Manning theory that pro wrestling just recycles stuff from the mainstream from three years ago. Killer Clowns from Outer Space dropped in 1988. It came out in 1990, so in 1992. It was time for WWF to have a fucking clown. The TV miniseries of It just came out as well. So there's that shit. And uh, 1989 was the Batman with Joker. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's all that shit. Just like Matt didn't have proper pro wrestling training, he also never went to clown school. He studied up on Cesar Romero's Joker, practiced in the mirror, and despite getting a lot of hate from his peers, he never had a doubt in his mind that this gimmick would work. Well, and the thing is, too, that made his doink better than everybody else. And it's taken me a few years to kind of nail down what it is. Because I always heard people talk about, like, no, when Matt, Matt Bourne was the best at it. And, and I grew up solely with the Ray Apollo version of Doink the Clown. Like, I, <laughs> that's all I ever knew. It's all I ever saw. And I just thought it was that. It was just whatever. And he always, Ray Apollo always did, like, the over-the-top stuff. But seeing... Matt Bourne do it, especially in some some of the matches we're going to talk about. There'd be a moment he would do the over the top thing, but then there'd be a time where he would stop 
and it almost like his eyes would roll to almost like the back of his head or they would scale back and almost like you would see this disturbed individual behind the yeah, makeup yeah, like yeah. he he let the veil down of the over the top clown he would do the over the top clown and then there'd be a moment and a look of of just sheer sinisterness yeah. uh just sadistic like look on his face like uh, there's somebody behind there that that's that's evil which made the goofier stuff seemed that much more sinister and nefarious and that was just like a level that i don't think anybody picked up on especially that little nuance to the character what made that so special and makes me really think that maybe i need to explore that myself as as the man scout when i when i think about turning turning me evil i'm predominantly babyface a lot of places but what does the heel character look like and can i make it heal so it's not hokey but what can i do that makes it a little bit more darker sinister ominous uh, i would probably have to go back and watch some doink the clown stuff you're spot on there there's so much stuff where doink would pull these promos like ah, ah, and then he would slowly work into a promo about how he was going to break into your mom's house and drag her out of her bed and grab a knife from the kitchen it was that shit where you're like Oh, his eyes would drop. You would realize it was real, and it, 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 it he built up to the point so it would catch you off guard and make you feel like, oh fuck, I feel weird. Yeah, I I thought it was brilliant. Like I remember the Ray Apollo stuff, and you know you'd always remember like, ah, oh, fucking doink the clown. But then I remember watching through the network during the Matt Bourne era and just being like, holy fuck, this is great. I mean, he was like ahead of his time. The, I, I'll, I'll get into it later, but. Damn. Yeah, yeah. He- Heenan would be the one that would hammer this home so fucking hard throughout all the matches. Like, look how he changed from one personality to another. Look how he would do it. They they really, they knew what they had and they worked with it well. But yeah, like, we'll move it on. Right. Portraying the sadistic, vicious, evil clown, Matt would start showing up to play tricks on crowds in January of 93. And this led to Doink's first feud when Crush finally confronted him. Doink would attack Crush with a prosthetic arm on an episode of Superstars, which would plant the seed for a match at WrestleMania 9. Okay, I don't know if this is intentional, but we got the whole demonic killer clown thing, which is straight out of John Wayne Gacy, which Nick mentioned. And then we have the prosthetic arm ruse, which is what Ted Bundy got most of his gimmicks into his car with. He would pretend to have a broken arm, say he needed help, and then club him over the head. So we have John Wayne Gacy and Ted Bundy with a clown gimmick in the WWF in the early 90s. Don't know if that was intentional with the slaying thing, but uh, fuck. Doink did have a dark match at 93's Royal Rumble, January 24th beating Jim Powers, but the public would get to see him in the ring for the first time on Superstars that aired January 31st, 1993, beating Bob East. From there, Doink was pulling tricks on fans and wrestlers, squashing job guys on Wrestling Challenge and Superstars. Doink would make his Raw debut on Raw number 4, taking on Typhoon. And I've almost said this a lot of times, but we're quarantined. How fucking terrible was Rob Bartlett on commentary? Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't, I don't just... know anything about his stand-up or his work outside of WWF, but he's fucking brutal. You don't like his one-liners, dude, that just, like, zing and zang and pop and... Mm, no? 
it was like the most unfunny person in the world saw Bobby Heenan and was like, oh, I could fuck do that. And then he got hired. <laughs> and it is just a fucking train wreck. So anyways, Doink beats Typhoon after a uh, diving shoulder block elbow type thing. Uh, he rolls up Typhoon like backwards like he grabs each one of his legs and puts them under his arms and then he goes to grab the tights but since typhoon wore a singlet it looked like he grabbed each one of typhoon's nuts like one in each hand and held him down for the pin which would be a really effective way to pin someone hey man that's sadistic (laughs) all right uh yeah so he had the typhoon stuff uh he has a kamala match where he gives kamala a present and Kamala is so amazed that he stands outside the ring with the present, and then Doink wins by countout. Um, he does some really sadistic, fucked up holds on the big boss man. If you want to watch this match, this is a good representation of just the true sadism that Doink was. He had these fucked up submission holds, and then he did the the spraying uh, flower water, but it was like a great muda because it actually sprayed green water onto his face like it was some blinding Jurassic Park shit. Watch the Jim Powers jobber match. There's a weird, it is, they really tried to nail the idea that it was an illusion that uh, Doink could play with reality, and Heenan in the commentary mixes with the editing into this way that it creates this magic weird goofy moment that's really interesting to see um chris duffy is a jobber that he kicks over doink's tricycle so doink immediately flips out and suicide dives onto duffy barry horowitz tries to pull his uh wig and doink laughs in his face and then uh he actually beats uh the kamikaze kid in his debut match who was actually the one two three kid and it's it's interesting to see him in his first and there's a face-to-face promo with doink and the one two three kid where doink the second doink is creeping behind one two three kid in the background like it's a fucking horror movie the way they play with doink in these early uh jobber matches of him as like this supernatural being that can be anywhere at any time is really interesting and pretty cool to see how they messed with the filmmaking and imagine supernatural being sadistic clown versus the undertaker yeah Yeah, right like how awesome of a feud that that could have should have been yeah i don't think the fiend is quite a clown but we could still get that it's true so matt would have his second wrestlemania doinks first in las vegas nevada at wrestlemania 9 against crush um i mean we got the double doinks the double doinks moment's pretty cool when they actually come out you, you see that brought up a lot of uh people having memories about wrestlemania i i wasn't around watching exactly when this happened but uh apparently the double doinks in the moment had a huge impression the my mirror shit they did was was <laughs> yeah, pretty was amazing uh, yeah, as, as heenan said it's magic and as jr said it's cheating so uh the second doink there was steve kern who people may know as skinner and Steve had to actually hide under the ring before fans got there, hide during the whole WrestleMania, and then hide under the ring until people were leaving. And that is why he was employed and ran FSCW and paid very well to do so. <laughs> that was his nice severance pay. After Mania, Doink would try to qualify for the King of the Ring tournament, having to beat Mr. Perfect to do so. And we mentioned this on our Mr. Perfect episode. This was likely them putting Kurt in the ring with Matt in an attempt to shake off Mr. Perfect's ring rust. 
They'd have two time limit draws on Superstars and Wrestling Challenge before meeting on a match that aired May 24th, 93 on Raw. And this match has two will-be-continued commercial breaks in it, and it is still good as fuck. This is easily my favorite Matt Bourne match. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, I can't agree with Nick enough. You gotta watch all this trilogy of matches. They are so good, man. They work, they work, they work. Knowing the guys, you shouldn't be surprised, but they are totally worth watching. I think it really speaks to the ability of Matt Bourne and the confidence they have in him. You have somebody the caliber of Kurt Hennig, and you're trying to get him ready, and you, you're like, who can we use that can get him ready and back to the Mr. Perfect of old, and you go to Matt Bourne. I think that speaks to the ability, the confidence that they had of him, because let's be honest, in pro wrestling sometimes metal – sharpens metal and that's that's basically how they felt about matt Bourne. you also get to see i think it's the second perfect match you really get to see how they're hammering home that that doink will scare the shit out of children he is that scary and it's really that that chuck taylor level of just like kids like oh fuck i'm gonna have a horrible time for the rest of the show type level of heat that uh he could get on people at the beginning of the second match, he's scaring kids, and then Perfect comes out and chops the shit out of Doink in the middle of scaring the kid, which, of course, gives a huge pop, which is a great play. For the Raw match, they do the double Doink spot again, but Kurt catches the fake Doink with the Perfect Plex and wins. But there's only one Doink, Nick. It's an illusion. Didn't you hear Bobby? <laughs> the whole thing, they're like, how can there be more than one Doinks? It's like, <laughs> they just dress the same. What are you talking no, no, about? no, no, no. No, you don't understand. That's impossible. But I, lo I love Heenan's just, he consistently is like, oh, no, it's an illusion. It's yeah. illusion. So being knocked out of the tournament wouldn't stop Doink from showing up to 93's King of the Ring, where he interfered during the Crush and HBK match. And they did this, like, double Doink walkout thing in unison, and it's so cool and creepy. I, I recommend just seeing that part. Yeah, and they're both smoking cigars. It's fucking yeah, weird. It's Doink spent the next few months facing Crush at house shows while breaking off to have some TV matches against Macho Man and Marty Jannetty. This all culminates in a match that Jannetty and Doink have on Raw. It's 621-93, two out of three falls. Nick loves the perfect matches, but this this Jannetty-Doink two out of three falls match, I cannot fucking put over enough. Doink comes out on a unicycle, and he actually rides the damn unicycle, which is another, like... Wow, skills, brother. Um, he just the way they play it. Doink is at, at his best, I think, in this match. He does this weird, creepy waving Janetti into the corner, and when he's come closer, he waves him in a little more and a little more, and then he like knocks Janetti down, and he just starts mad uh, clown laughing and mocking him and saying, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry." Meanwhile, just cackling like a psychotic clown. But then they get into exchanges that are just you know fucking gorgeous. And high pace, and the ending is a bit of a fuck up, screw job, crazy thing, but it works for the gimmick, and it, it it's it's so good. I cannot say enough about this Genetti match. You need to watch it. Uh, as Heenan said, doinks are like Jello. There's always room for more. Jake, pound for pound, who's the best in the world, Marty Genetti or Matt Bourne doing cocaine? Ooh, that's a good question. I think you have to go with the fact that Marty Jannetty is still alive. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, no, it's, 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 I mean, you got to go there. 
you want you want clean comedy i'm i'm your guy but if you want happy comedy i'm not your guy <laughs> then at SummerSlam 93 jerry lawler was set to face bret hart as a continuation of their feud that started at king of the ring but on the way to SummerSlam, jerry was sadly involved in a fiery car crash but being the king he was jerry hobbled there on one leg on crutches and was prepared to fight bret but the doctors stopped him from competing so Jerry gave us his own court jester to take his place. Doink comes out with a bucket of confetti and a bucket of water. The fans get the confetti, but then he throws uh, a bucket of water on Bruce Hart, who did not know that was going to happen. You can see Bruce's reaction where he slips, falls, and acts like, I'm going to kill this motherfucker. It is a great moment of just, it's like, yep, that's a shoot. That's a shoot right there. And rightfully so. Bruce was always trying to get himself over on <laughs> WWE TV, and that motherfucker needed to cool off a little bit. So. so it turns out that Jerry Lawler really wasn't hurt, which makes his entire story about the car crash seem fake. Uh, he comes in and hits Brett with his crutches while Doink was in the sharpshooter. The ref clearly sees this, but doesn't DQ him. I, it was very weird. So Doink just leaves with no ending to the match, no official announcement for the ending of the match. And then in the chaos, Jack Tunney makes Lawler wrestle Brett, who gets sharpshooter to death. Then things start going bad for both Matt Bourne and Doink. Because Matt was truly a great in-ring wrestler, and the evil Doink gimmick was so good, and his gags were sometimes funny, even if they were at the expense of a babyface, the crowd started to cheer him. This caused Vince to meet with Matt about turning him face, and Matt did not like this because without the added element of being evil, Doink was just a clown. With Vince set on good guy Doink, they turned him against Lawler, then they put a bow on it on September 13th, 93's Raw, when Doink poured a pill of water all over Heenan, making him babyface as fuck. In late 93, Doink would start a feud with Bam Bam Bigelow, facing him at house shows, but September 27th, 93, Doink failed a drug test and was suspended for eight weeks. He still had some matches and promos in the can, so we'd still see him on TV. But uh, as far as Doink's replacements go, at house shows, Matt would be replaced by Brooklyn Brawler. As Doink number two, Steve Kern, was no longer in WWF, was actually on the indie circuit being Doink the Clown. <laughs> Eventually, Bam Bam would bring in his friend Ray Apollo to do the Doink gimmick. And this would explain why Doink wouldn't be at Survivor Series, and they'd have to toss together the replacement match. That match would be 1993's worst match of the year, and quite possibly the worst match ever that we keep having fucking talk about, where the Bushwhackers and Men on a Mission dress up in clown makeup, and then uh, they beat Bam Bam, Bastion Booger, Head Shrinkers, something I will never, never forgive Matt Bourne for. Well, I never wa I've only watched it once and I think that's enough. Are you guys watching it every time we do an episode of one of these guys? Like, oh well, we gotta do one on Mabel, so I gotta watch this match again. But we got one on Bastion Booger, gotta watch this match again. I think you see it once, it kinda seared in your memory forever, guys. Like you don't have to keep watching that match. You can stop and we can stop talking about this match. Uh it makes us makes me not wanna do any of the bushwhackers. So stay alive forever, Luke. So things kept piling on backstage. Matt got in a heated argument with Click member Razor Ramon, which is a big no-no. Uh, and then Bam Bam apparently narked on Matt for smoking weed in his hotel with his previous drug problems, his backstage drama, and the ability to just put a less problematic person in a clown suit. Matt Bourne was fired. 
Yeah, it sounded like it was just the final straw of just adding up, adding up, adding up. And then, yeah, I think the Bam Bam thing was he was smoking weed, like, in the hotel hallway in front of people or some shit. It was just like, all right. Matt, I need you to come in the office real fast. So, uh, Matthew, I hear that you are smoking the ganja. <laughs> you taking a puff on the, the devil's lettuce. Smoking on that green, man. You know that hippie shit? Whatever the fuck it is the kids are doing these days. That thing that's gonna become legal nationwide, but we're gonna still have people locked up for selling a minimal amount of... Smoking. And marijuana. That dirty, disgusting, awful plant. I, I, could, I could understand wanting to get high because I'm always high on goddamn life and the smell of money. I understand getting high, but what I can't understand is putting smoke in your lungs. That's why I fired people for smoking in my presence. I don't like them sneezing in front of me. You gotta have control of your lungs. You can be bugging them down with type of smoke. No, you gotta put oxygen in there so that oxygen can get into those muscles and make you jacked as fuck. Which is why you, Matthew, son of Tony, Matthew, Wade, Osborne, you're fired! With Matt gone, the Doink character lived on through uh, Brooklyn Brawler and Ray Apollo filling in. And when people kind of scoff at how not good doink was this is the era people are remembering matt bourne was closer to heath ledger's joker than a zany bozo the clown damn straight after getting fired life got bad for matt pretty much right away uh the very next day he got in a huge argument with his wife which led to her taking his daughter and twenty thousand dollars and leaving forever jobless wifeless kitless matt isolated himself and spent the next month spending his savings on cocaine yeah one of the most fucked up moments watching the shoot is just him being like telling that story about we got in a fight and she left and took my daughter and then he's sitting there doing the shoot and he's saying i haven't seen her since you're like oh (laughs) it's like 25 years you haven't seen her once since then fuck it's like Roddy Piper in the Always Sunny wrestling episode uh, where they talk about him having a kid. And like, hi, have you seen your kids? And Piper just got that long look in his eye. And he's like, nah. <laughs> like, like, that's, like, nobody talks about how creepy as fuck that was. But that was creepy as fuck. Have you done Always Sunny on How Did This Get Booked? That would be a great episode. No, I definitely probably need to. Yeah, that, that Piper really plays a down and out wrestler like fuck it, perfect. Oh, he knows it. But <laughs> like, uh, how did this get booked? We've got the next month planned out, where we've got we're gonna do the big shows, big show, which probably is already out, and then we're doing maybe a random indie show, and then we gotta do that seventy show wrestling episode. So we'll put that's always sunny in the next rotation. Do it so. Still in the throes of addiction and depression, Matt eventually picked himself up and started working indie dates. He'd then go to the only place an unhinged, cracked-out lunatic of a pro wrestler could go. E.C. Dub. E.C. Dub. Doink would make his ECW debut 
August 27th, 1994, getting super squashed by 911 to a very hostile crowd's delight. Can one of you ECW zealots explain Matt Bourne's run here? All right. So, as Nick said, they bring him in to get squashed by 911. If you don't know 911, he was kind of a short lived super monster who he was just a big dude. He had one move, it was a choke slam. Heyman was the manager of him, and he would just he would bring him out just to destroy motherfuckers for fans to like. So he's in the NWA title tournament. 911 destroys him. Second round, it's Too Cold Scorpio who beat Chris versus 911. 911 is destroying Too Cold, and then all of a sudden, Doink comes out and beats the shit out of Paul Heyman. Paul Heyman falls to the ring, and then 911 goes out there to save him. But who starts beating the shit out of 911 with a chair but Matt Bourne? How does this happen? Are there two doinks? What the fuck's going on? All of a sudden, he rips off the mask, and Shane Douglas is dressed up like doink. They roll 911 in there, beat to shit with the chair, and Two Cold Scorpio pins him and moves on. Shane Douglas joins up with Matt Bourne, who is now born again doink they cut there's so many good hardcore tv promos where shane is basically saying he's taking all the cartoonish bullshit that existed in the wwf back then and making it real digging deep down into matt and finding the true wrestler the true grappler the actual person behind the sellout doink gimmick and it's so fucking good it's good meta kind of reaching this level of wrestling where kayfabe is kind of going out and they create this idea of uh like he starts doing the half face uh doink makeup half face not and there's so much good stuff with playing with the idea that the gimmick that matt had to play as a clown actually infected him as a person and he is getting fucked up with what he had to do professionally, and it deals with the integrity of the wrestler. I'm probably reading this too much and giving it too much credit, but this is kind of what it works with. There's a Too Cold Scorpio match on Hardcore TV that messes with this real good. It's so much good shit, but it was cut short. Jake, did you get a chance to see any of this? No, you you nailed it perfectly. That was what they were going for, and that was what always Shane was discussing, the cartoony world of professional wrestling. What we do here is real and authentic, and for someone like Shane Douglas, who wrestled in Men's South, he knows the stories of Matt Bourne being a fucking badass, so it's the idea of, like, this guy was forced to be a cartoon, you know, this guy was a legitimate wrestler, and this is what he was (laughs) forced to to do and look how it fucked him up mentally this is what Vince McMahon does to people and turn them into fucking sideshow attractions and literal clowns like it just it's that's what they were going for that's how they positioned themselves and Matt just kind of went along fit perfectly in that yeah uh, it, it's worth digging for there's some on YouTube uh, if you can find some torrents to find because there's like a three, four minute promo of Matt just going off. Too cold, does it? Well, then not um, Torrance. Go to highspots.com. We've got all of the hardcore TVs available in DVD Oh, you do? Form okay, shit. With, with the copyrighted music still in it, which I don't think we're supposed Ooh. to still sell. But it is available at highspots.com. <laughs> all, all of the stuff that we're discussing is available at highspots.com in DVD form. So go check that out. 
I mean, that's honestly a big deal because uh, watching the WWE Network old ECW stuff and the the music's not there, it's just like, oh, it's so demoralizing. <laughs> it kills the whole vibe when not the Sandman comes out to duh, 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 and it's just some generic rock bullshit instead of Inner Sandman. So Matt's time at ECW was short-lived. His version of the story is that a promoter from Germany called him up and gave him some dates, but since matt was booked for ecw he declined the promoter then wouldn't take no for an answer so matt gave him a cartoonish number which the promoter actually accepted so matt called paul Heyman up and told him the amount of money he was going to make in germany paul was understanding and said that when matt came back to the states just to give him a call when matt came back to the states he called up paul Heyman and was straight up ghosted that's just the way promoters can be sometimes. And you have to understand that that's the way the ball bounces. And there are millions of stories just like this with Paul Heyman and Matt Bourne. And it's just the way it goes. Certain decisions changes people about how they feel about you. A perfect example, also another two. When I was wrestling for Evolve and Dragon Gate USA, Gabe was very high on me. And then all of a sudden that changed for whatever reason maybe just didn't like me just that just changed but then I was just managing so I was like coming in and just managing Chuck Taylor and Drew Gulak like I was just managing I think even one time I wore the Swamp Monster outfit like I wasn't even myself I was just another dude and then like a hurricane hit Florida and like something happened with how we were going to get down there and there was like a discussion of like we weren't for sure or like we had to hop in a car with Sal who was driving down. We had to so there was going to be some extraordinary circumstances and Caleb had to be there because he was contracted. I was not contracted. I was basically managing people and I told Gabe that I wouldn't be able to make it. Also, too, I was editing the Dynamite Kid documentary, which was taking up a lot of my time. So I was like, hey, I'm not going to be able to make it to these shows. And ever since then, Gabe never talked to me ever again. Jeez. So that's just, that's how, that's how it goes. Like, because I didn't just go down and walk to the ring with a couple of guys post hurricane and change how I was going to travel, which would have added another two days onto me being down there. Like it was really extraordinary circumstances, how we were going to get there. And it was going to take me away from a documentary that had six figures attached to it. And him not being understanding, he just he saw it as a, a disrespectful thing. And now every time he sees my name, that's what he thinks about me, that I'll just run out on him. Is it worth following up and saying, hey, I'm sorry I dropped early. I was just wanting nope. to give you time. It, it, nope, doesn't, it, matter? it, it, it doesn't matter. It, it, you have to understand. It's much like in a similar situation that my, my girlfriend breaking up with me right as this pandemic happened. I understand the reasons why she wanted to break up, and that sucks. But... She, in my mind, she ran out of me on a time when I really needed someone the most. And that's how I will always remember her. And that's not her fault, but that's what I'm going to remember about her. And that sucks. She is a nice person, but at the same time, too, that's what she did to me. And that's how she hurt me. So that's how I hurt the Limitless Promoter. That's how I hurt Gabe. And I have to take responsibility, even though ext extenuating circumstances were the, really the reason why they got hurt particularly you have to take ownership of even the larger bullshit of the world and unfortunately that's what Matt Bourne got caught with sorry that was a very large sidetrack but that's just a side of the business that I have never heard anybody talk about um, in any podcast whatsoever so it might be worth listening to 
After leaving ECW, Matt tried to stay afloat in the bleak late 90s, early 2000s indie scene. In 97, he had a pretty brutal car accident, which led to him being in ICU for three days. He actually had to get the old defibrillator because he was actually dead for a moment. Jake, have you ever had to get the defibrillator because you almost died? No, but a good friend of mine had uh, heart murmur issues, and if his heart was acting funny, he had to put these things around his wrist, attach this thing to a telephone, dial a number, and wait for it to shock him. What the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Matt would also try his hand at some Hollywood stunt work and even got to work on Larger Than Life with Bill Murray. Um, I tried to do some research to try to find Matt's claim that he did do some Hollywood stunt work. I couldn't find anything. I'd find it hard to believe he just lied about it because he tells a story about Bill Murray and him having a moment, but I, I could not find anything. As the wrestling business itself started picking up in the later 2000s, so did Matt's work schedule. And he'd start showing up at conventions, reunion shows, and indie bookings all across the world. And I remember him showing up at one of the early Wrestle Reunions, like 2005 Wrestle Reunion? I think it was 2005. And we had Tony Casino with us. And Tony, of course, was trained by Matt. And they, they met up, had a drink, had a good laugh. I should have made a point to hang out with them, but I was with my girlfriend at the time. But, like... Tony always talked very highly of Matt. And I guess Matt even had like a training school, obviously, because he trained Tony. Um, Tony Kazina's got some great Matt Bourne stories. And if Tony wasn't living in New Zealand right now, I'd find a way to get in touch with him. We do DM on, on Instagram from time to time just to see how each other's doing. But it's been a very long time that I wasn't able to get up with him for research of this. But Tony always talks about a good story when him and... Matt were on a show one time. Tony brought his new girlfriend to one of his first wrestling shows. And Matt, being a guy who liked to fuck with people, uh, was like, oh, I heard you brought your girlfriend here today. Where's she at? And Tony's like, oh, I got her front row. She's just over there. And and that's like, oh, cool. Good for you. She's a good-looking girl. And then Matt went on before Tony. And Matt's in the middle of his match, and he's getting beat up, and he spills to the outside and lands right in front of uh, Tony's girlfriend. And as he's pulling himself up with the guardrails, he looks right up at the girl and goes, oh, are you Tony Kazina's rat? (laughs) (laughs) And then she, she had to ask him like, what's a rat? And Tony's like, Oh God, why do you, why did you do this to me, Matt? But, um, yeah, it's just the type of like fuckery he would do. But Tony talked about how he had a very sick sense of humor, but he did help him out a lot and give him a lot of interesting aspects to professional wrestling and, you know, really credit some men at the same time too. I think there's a little, there was a little bit of love there for, for Matt and Tony is like, cause I, I think when Matt first saw Tony, he goes, there's no way you're big enough to do this. And Tony just kept coming back and proving him wrong. And kind of, there was that respect there. So Matt Bourne could give respect, but you obviously had to, to earn it. And even when he did, he still fucked with you. On December 10th, 2007's Raw, we'd see Matt Bourne back on WWE television for the last time. As a part of Raw's 15th anniversary show, they did a Legends Battle Royal. 
he didn't last very long. Uh, he got an assisted elimination when everyone teamed up to toss out Gilberg. But a minute later, Al Snow clocks him with head and puts him over the top. Then IRS wins before Million Dollar Man walks out and pays IRS to let him win. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. In 2010, Matt would refresh the doink gimmick, basing it a little more off Heath Ledger's Joker. And again, Dark Knight came out in 2008. Wrestling catches up 2010. Don't worry, this was probably two years before Sting was doing the <laughs> Heath Ledger Joker on TNA. So Matt was still far ahead of his time, even though it had already passed. I guess Sting's really good at doing impressions of movie characters who the actors died shortly thereafter. <laughs> Way to go, Sting. If you want to look up Doink versus uh, Jim Duggan, there's a good kind of infamous shoot match where they both kind of get ornery old man about each other. The story goes that Duggan had done a bunch of shots at Applebee's before the match. <laughs> I don't know how much validity is in that, but just that sentence makes me laugh. It, it, it seems like Duggan's not selling, and he's giving Doink a bunch of shit, and then Bourne gets pissed off and goes in the crowd and grabs a chair, and then Duggan just nonchalantly stumbles out of the arena and just leaves and the match is over. It is, it's, it's very weird. I had to watch it twice to kind of see all the nuances of two old men being pissy at each other, but it is kind of a fun shoot where shit just turns terrible. Well, let me say this. I refrain from saying a lot of salacious things about Hackshaw Jim Duggan, <laughs> but let me say this story. I won't say who told me this, because um, I'm sure he would like to stay anonymous. Hacksaw the, Jim Duggan. <laughs> uh, the first time that I wrestled Hacksaw Jim Duggan, uh, this one guy who had wrestled him a considerable amount of time came up to me and was like, hey, just want to let you know that wrestling Jim tonight it's going to be fun. It's going to be great. But let me give you a piece of advice. If he smells like vodka, it's going to be the easiest match of your life. <laughs> if he doesn't smell like vodka, <laughs> be careful. You might get potato. That's just. <laughs> so if Matt got upset that Hacksaw had a, a few shots at Applebee's beforehand, he doesn't. He didn't get that piece of advice before he went out there. If he would have got that, he'd be like, oh, you got some shots? Great. Easiest pie. See you out there, Jimmy. Into the 2010s, Matt would keep taking bookings while working as a carpenter, all while fighting addiction. So Matt Barnett tried to get off drugs several times on his own, and he did at least one stint in a proper rehab, but he was never able to shake it. Osborne was found dead on June 28, 2013 in Plano, Texas. The cause of death was later determined as an accidental overdose of morphine and hydrocodone. Matt was only 55 years old. Matt isn't in the Hall of Fame. Do you think he should be? I think so. I mean, if we're, it's not just WWF shit. I mean, even if that what doink was and how unique he was and how i mean like pritchard talks puts him over big time i think now the respect for what that character was when it was the heel crazy psycho that was so unique i i think it i mean this is what i always say when this gets brought up the fucking godfather <laughs> is in the wwe hall of fame so yes doink matt osborne definitely deserves to be in the hall of fame if you're talking about pure in-ring skill and character and long-lasting yeah i think you could make i think you could put the doink character in and then that kind of 
includes, I think, Ray Apollo, too. But then that definitely does definitely include Matt Bourne. But as far as, like, Matt Bourne being in the Hall of Fame and then his attitude, I mean, the reason he got this whole gimmick is because he was a surly individual. Uh, It's very hard for you, like, we're going to honor a guy who is kind of a fucking prick. That's and I think I think but this is the WWF. <laughs> uh, yeah. You say the Godfather, but the Godfather was a lovable individual. I'm just saying most wrestlers are kind of pricks, right? Some of them they are. They are, and they're definitely not in. But it, it, those guys that are pricks, they're not on the bubble of getting in or or not. I think Doink is on the bubble, and because the guy who made it famous was such a surly fucking prick, and also, there are a lot of salacious uh, stories out there about him, about not being maybe the best person to people. Uh, I, I think they're going to leave that one alone. If they if they glaze over, like they had a perfect opportunity to put in Dynamite Kid and kind of cap off a redemption story, a man who paid for his sins for the latter part of his life. I I. I I'll have to do the math, but I think Dynamite Kid might have spent more time in a wheelchair than he did walking around. And he didn't get to see his kids, and he died in very, you know, not best circumstances, and, like, he he paid for his sins, okay? And and if you like, well, he did this and he did that, and he should have been drug out to the street and executed, well, that's where we're going to part ways. And he, as we discuss on my podcast he he paid a lot for that and they had a perfect opportunity to induct the british bulldogs and have all this love for davy boy which even like the latter part of his life is very precarious to even discuss or even think about and you could have inducted them both at the same time and they kind of dispersed that dispersed the heat a little bit you have a very love character but then we could recognize that this guy's a pioneer and did something fantastic and great and we can honor the british bulldogs they had an opportunity to do that and they did not they solely just gave it to all the davy which is fine respect it got it and rightfully so davy belongs in there and i but i also feel the dynamite kid but he's not getting in as a singles act um ray apollo i don't think he's getting into the singles act even though he was a nice guy i don't think he was the guy that brought the doink the clown character to another level it was all matt Bourne, and we're sitting on something that's the bubble but because of his pure attitude towards life um no i I don't i don't think it should be so where i I feel like there was a little bit of possible redemption for for dynamite kid i I don't think there's a whole heck of a lot of redemption in matt Bourne. if we're talking about strictly matt Bourne, i mean i mean he's like one of the most accomplished tag team wrestlers out there he won the belts everywhere he went he won the Texas Heavyweight Championship. He he had his a run in WCW. He has one of the most iconic characters of his gener of the new generation. I I would nudge him in. I think I know he's kind of a shitbag person. And there's a lot of horror stories about Matt Bourne, but it's not a fucking, you know, it's not it's not the world's nicest guy Hall of Fame. It's the pro wrestling WWE Hall of Fame. So I I do think he's on the bubble, but when you look at that list he's more deserving than a lot of people so uh final thoughts on matt Bourne. as i kind of said in whether or not he should be on the hall of fame i think that kind of covers a lot of the final thoughts but you know kind of what i said earlier is 
he was definitely a guy set up for the territory system and sometimes for the bad aspects of the territory system like those dark corners is where he played but that also created some pretty fantastic art and you look at the fiend character is that kind of born from you know doing the clown is that an inspiration maybe you could you could make that argument or it, it definitely as creative as people think that character is that's how creative and interesting doing the clown could have been if given the right time and circumstances um but as far as matt Bourne as an individual like nicholas said he tag team wrestler just about everywhere he went and the his ability to separate his dickishness outside of the ring he got into a, like a knockdown drag out fight with arn anderson they still crushed it on a 35 minute match one day so like he cared about professional wrestling as far as being like a lunch pail type of guy like hey pro wrestling's my job i'm gonna go out and do my job and i'm gonna do it to the best of my ability and then afterwards i'm gonna get fucked up i mean how many blue collar guys are living that lifestyle and would you say are the most wonderful human beings of all time but they were the guys that are building our houses, fixing our cars, doing whatever, doing the, but they're good at their job. They handle a job as professional as possible. What they do in their free time, they see is their free time and what they do. And I guess if you can separate that, which I can, um, I would say Matt Bourne was a very accomplished, talented wrestler, and younger wrestlers should look at him as an inspiration. Take some of the things, be inspired by him, and and see him as that. But uh, if you're looking for somebody to teach you on how to act outside of the ring, he's not the guy. I love Doink the Clown. I it's I keep bringing up Heath Ledger and his version of the Joker. I really think Matt had that side to him. And he really could have pulled that off. I, I think ECW really, if they would have given him a full story arc, you know, like six months a year to see this evil clown fucking unravel and, and become insane. Like it would have been one of the great things in wrestling history. I think, cause I think Matt Bourne had the fucked up head for it and he had the in-ring ability for it. And Man, it could have, it really could have been good. And, and even with the restrictions of being in early 90s WWF, he still pulled it off, you know, without a swear word, without any crazy violence. You know, he still got it across. And imagine that with no restrictions. It would have been, would have been cool. You hear all these horror stories about Matt, everything he did bad. But in his shoot, man, he honestly came off like broken and, and sorry and ashamed for a lot of his actions. And I mean, when the, when the dude asked him if he had any regrets, he was like, yeah, I have a, I have a ton of regrets. I don't know. It's a, it, he's a big series of what ifs from his characters to his battles with drugs. If you don't want to give Matt Bourne a chance, I totally get it. But from his territory work, his WCW matches, his doink the clown run, he is, he's never going to be forgotten by pro wrestling history. Nick is right. Bourne's shoot is really interesting. He comes off really good in it. You hear all these horror stories, and then he comes off. He, he talks about it as like, I think I, I think I'm now a loving person. I'm a generous person. I'm a compassionate person. And all the things you hear before he says that, you believe because he really comes off good. He doesn't like even during the Bam Bam stuff. He doesn't. He doesn't. I don't think he even name drops him in the in the RF shoot. He doesn't shit talk him. He doesn't seem bitter. 
But it's also that thing, he knows his own reputation. He knows all the stories about him. And this is a big shoot interview with RF Video, which at the time was, you know, the fucking big deal. And he knows so many people are going to see this and get an impression, maybe a first-time impression, a, a first-time visual impression of him from this shoot. So if there's not a ton of control to show who he is and who he was and how it's changed and to create this different person, maybe not exactly how he really feels, but, you know, to mess with how people will think of him because he knows this shoot interview is going to be so looked at and so studied. It's going to give impressions. It, it seems genuine and he's good, but part of me wants to think maybe a dude like him knows what it means and he knows how to control the narrative and it's kind of manipulative to come off good. I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading into it too much, but Matt does seem like a good dude and it makes you want to care for him. And I did, because he, he owns up to his mistakes. He says he's the master of mistakes. Talks about his drug habit. He says, I just couldn't turn it off. He owns up to it. He doesn't make excuses. It's that type of shit that just, he does make you care. But then there's always that skeptical part of me. He's like, is he just fucking doing this just because this is a shoot? I don't know. Um, Doinks uh, uh, promos leading up to some house shows with Randy Savage are so good. Uh, look those up. Those are a lot of those good that me and Jake talked about of him doing the but then like stopping on a record scratch and then just doing those like deep eyed weird Alan Moore Joker promos that like fucking like whoa where did that come from man and just the the way that Doink had what was it nine months ten months of just weird dastardly sadistic evil clown shit was really something special i don't know i need to go back and watch more of the mid-south stuff that he did but he had a lot of good work all over everywhere he went and matt matt's matt's one of those yeah matt's one of those tales of what could have been because what he did was still good but it could have been even fucking better all right, that is Matt Bourne, Big Josh, Doink the Clowns, episode of Tim Belt Pod. Uh, once again, we can't thank everyone enough for listening. We can't thank everyone enough for donating to our Patreon and supporting the show. Thank you. Especially during all this shit that's happening right now. Um, if you can, check out highspots.com. You can find the Matt Bourne shoot there. You can find like a fucking million shoots there. Uh, highspots.com, who do not sponsor us. Find us at timbellpot.com, at timbellpot on the social medias. Jake's Man Scout Manning, Micah J Trotter27. I'm Nicolessa. Uh, anything before we leave? Okay, I'm going to make all of us uh, do our own evil clown laugh. Okay. All right, I'm going to go first. Jake goes last. You can build up to it. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Really? Is that, uh, is that what you're submitting to the board? I'll submit to the board a laugh that uh, Eddie Kingston always makes me do. Ooh, he thinks wow. Eddie Kingston thinks I have a creepy laugh. Keep in mind the things that Eddie Kingston has seen in his <laughs> life. He thinks every time I go, <laughs> <laughs> he thinks that's pretty creepy. That's good. I like that one. All right. Nick, no, you don't want to follow up with your, your shitty clown laugh that you just did there? No. Hey! 
Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to 10 Bell Pot. I can't thank you enough, but I would love to thank you a lot more by you guys making a purchase at highspots.com. Guys, I know it's tough. I know money's tight. And, you know, please hang on to your money as much as possible in these times. I won't get into theories and reasons why, because I'll just scare you. And I don't want to scare you. I want to sell you on highspots.com. It's a small business that has been integral to the part of professional wrestling and its growth over the last couple of years. And it employs a lot of independent professional wrestlers who, without it, would not have a sense of employment and the ability to go chase their dreams, much like I have for the last 15 years. And also, too, this is the craziest sale we've ever run at HighSpots.com. This might be a going out of business sale. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. I, I, I'm a little optimistic today at this moment. But right now, we have 50% off all DVDs and downloads I'm packaging up the DVDs myself personally, so if you buy a DVD, chances are I've got my fingerprints all over it. I promise you I'm coronavirus-free, Scout's Honor. So you know, go ahead and make a purchase. Also, too, 36% off of all other items other than wrestling ring accessories. This is the time, if there's ever been something on the High Spots website that you're like, you know... Maybe one day I'll buy that or like, mm, I don't know. I really like that, but we'll see. No, this is the time because we are running out of stock and a lot of things. A lot of once in a lifetime autographs, memorabilia is just going out the door and will never come back through the doors again. So if you've ever wanted to make a purchase from highspots.com, if you were able to at this moment in time, I highly encourage you to do so. And uh, thank you for your support and thank you for the support on 10 Bell Pod.